1: We can see that illuminated sign that marks the end of the journey. This vaccine will help us get past this pandemic once and
0: for all. We need people to have faith that this vaccine is safe and that they should take it. The thing that's going to stop us from seeing the end of this pandemic are people going, oh, I'm not so sure.
1: Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Roger Hearing.
2: And good afternoon. I'm Caroline Hepke. Well, we start with the continuing uncertainty over the full reopening of England's economy from the 21st of June.
1: The Health Secretary, Matt Hancock, says the government's looking at the impact of new variants as part of four tests it's set before further lockdown restrictions can be eased. Hancock says the latest advice is that the Delta variant, which was first detected in India, is around 40% more transmissible than the Alpha one. The government is also considering the number of cases, hospital admissions and the vaccine rollout, according to Hancock, before deciding on whether England can completely open on June the 21st.
2: But businesses across the country are warning that the potential for a fresh wave of restrictions is posing a threat to their ability to reboot. In a recent survey by the British Chambers of Commerce, small companies say that they are increasingly optimistic about their near-term prospects, but they warn that progress risks being derailed by the possibility of another nationwide lockdown. So almost 40% of the companies surveyed by the BPCC say that the threat of future lockdowns is holding. Holding them back from reopening at all.
1: Well, joining us now is Peter Dowd, who's Labour MP for Bootle and former Shadow Chief Secretary to the Treasury. Peter, thanks for being with us. Very uh, warm welcome to you. Uh, Do you think the government is right to hold off on making this decision on June the 21st until, in fact, June the 14th, just a week before it happens? A lot of people think this is terribly last minute and actually quite damaging to business, apart from anything else.
3: Well, yes, it is last minute, however, I think, given that the government's not handled some of the stages in this uh, the best it could, I suspect it's being cautious and I think it's right to be cautious in the light of that you know at the end of the day, we still have the best part of one hundred and thirty thousand people who have who have died over the past twelve months or so 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 yes they 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 ought to be um cautious um Of course they should. Of course they should be.
2: Okay. so right to be cautious. But given the success, actually, of the vaccine rollout and what we see potentially really is the breaking of the link between infections and serious illness or death, does it make sense to keep the restrictions?
3: Well, it depends on the nature of the restrictions and how aggressive those restrictions are. Have to be, but I think the point you made is important. It's the question of uncertainty, and, and I don't think we have to be in this situation. The government were announcing things. You know, twenty first of June was the, the deadline when everything was going to be lifted, and now mm. we're in the situation where that mightn't be the date. Now, I'd like to just go on and just criticise the government and say it's just handled this in dreadfully. But the reality is we are where we are with the government's approach to this and we just got to make the best of the historic bad handling of it and the way we are and the facts that are facing us at the moment. So so it would be easy for me to say, oh no, the government should throw caution to the wind. That would be irresponsible. So yes, they've got to handle this in a very sensible, reasonable, fact-based, evidence-based based way. And, and having demanded that they do that for the past 12 months Mm. i'm now not going to say um you know brush aside everything that i've been and other people have been demanding for the past 12 months
1: but what what are your constituents saying i mean people must be coming up to you and saying look you know we need we've we've all had all the the vulnerable people have had their vaccinations the link has been broken Mm. with serious infections and hospital admissions isn't this balance that we're talking about doesn't it need to swing the other way because it's an acknowledgement
3: that this isn't just a simple problem. No, that's right. And we, look, the reality is we're going to have to live live with this virus and variations of it for some while yet. So yes, it is inevitably always trying to get the, uh, the balance right. And I think at this moment, again, in the light of false starts in the past, in the light of the fact we have had 130,000 people dead. And by the way... Best part of 40% of the total of our deaths have come from people in care homes, which account for less than 1% of the population. So the government have to take an approach which is balanced. I don't think it had the balance right. The vaccine process has come along and helped helped out considerably. But we do have to just maintain a, a relatively cautious approach to this. And yes, people are coming to me on a terribly frustrated that. You know, we seem to be yet in another stop-start scenario. And they are right to be frustrated, but I think overall we've got to take an approach that makes sure that we don't have another outbreak, for example, with the Delta variant in a month or six weeks' time. That's, that's what we've got to be careful of. And, and if you remember, that variant is something like 40% more transmissible. So, mm. yes, we have to be cautious but plan to um to to come out as soon as we practically can.
2: Okay, so still a cautious approach when it comes to the virus. Um now Peter, you are also the former shadow chief secretary to the treasury, so I want to get your views on the G7 corporate tax plan that emerged over the weekend, agreement amongst world's perhaps most powerful richest economies around this 15 percent minimum for corporation mm-hmm. tax around the world supported by the uk what do you think of it
3: well <clears throat> I think it's uh, pretty late in coming this should have been here considerably a considerable time before we've got it now we have to see what the detail of this is because um 15 percent it seems relatively low compared to what the current g7 rates are. But let's have a look at the detail of what it's going to mean. The other aspect to it is, well, people are concerned and have been concerned about the ability of corporations to dodge around this, basically. So we'll have to see actually how this is going to be implemented, what the, the, the context is, um, before we can give it a, a resounding slap on the back at this particular, at this particular time. But it's a, it's a step forward, and I'm glad I'm glad that that Biden has been pushing this which frankly is some of the some of the ideas and the policies that we've been pushing in labor um for some considerable time
1: but, but even when you were in government, when your party was in government, it was pretty obvious that certain areas for which Britain has responsibility, I'm thinking parts of the Caribbean, which which are tax havens, which are places where this money can go and corporations can find a much easier tax rate. I mean, that has to be pulled back as part of Britain's effort, doesn't it?
3: Well, of course it does. And we, we had proposals in our 2017 and 2000 the manifestos to actually do that. We pushed on, on this. And, of course... Um, we lost the election but that does not doesn't doesn't obviate the fact that they were policies we were trying to push on in fact i gave many interviews in relation to the um the well, let's call it the tax avoidance islands that that exists right across the world many as you indicate are, are under effectively british control in one fashion or another
2: um and so uh, yeah let, let's see what the result then of uh, the tax plan is Tax havens, um, uh, as you mentioned. What about, um, though, more party political issues? How confident are you in Keir Starmer's leadership? What if Labour loses the Batley and Spen by election? What then?
3: Well, the po- politics, to use the hackneyed old phrase, isn't an event, it's a process. And what I'm not going to be making comment on is is a particular event, whether it be the partly poor by election or whether the partly and by election you you can't have a you can't have politics on this, but this milestone approach. What we've got to, to take this is in the round, and I'm confident that labour you know in the coming months will be getting its message out. The concern that people have is that they're not quite sure what our message actually is. And I think once we can get our message out, whether you like the message or not, so to speak, it's important to get the message out rather than the perception at the moment that we don't actually quite have a message that we are getting out. So that's the important thing for me. Make sure we get our message and our policies and our views out there.
1: But what should that message be? Because, Peter, I mean, you're, you're in a constituency which could be seen as, as one of the ones that potentially is vulnerable to the trend. We've seen a bit with the, with the, the red wall, of course, in the north. Horrible cliche, but it's true. Uh, what is the kind of message that would appeal to the people who live in the part of the world that you do um, that would change the, the Labour's position and might bring Labour back to power?
3: Well, I, I think here, Starmer the other day set out a number of proposals. You know, for example, he talked about a, a fair education system for all. And I agree with that, but you have to put the meat on the bones. That's what people want. It's actually not saying we want a fair education system or we want justice for everybody. You actually have to say, what does that actually practically mean? It's the same with spending plans. You know, if you have spending plans, you're saying we're going to spend this amount of money on this area and this is how we're going to raise the tax. People might not actually like what you're going to spend the money, where you're going to raise it from in terms of revenue, but at the end of the day, they do know what you stand for and they can make an informed decision on the basis of, not in a sense super detailed policies, but policies which are pretty clear and set out well and tell people, not that they can just expect a fair education system, but they can expect this type of education system. They can expect that for their children. They can expect their children to be getting this result. They can expect that. They can expect... Tell them what mm-hmm. they can expect from us in, in a bit more detail. Well,
2: but, but can Starmer win that argument if he lays out his views?
3: Well, he can, because the bottom line is some of those policies are pretty attractive. I mean, it is... It is pretty attractive to say we, we would have, I mean, we're not focusing too much on the education system, an education system that provides X, Y, or Z. It, that is an attractive policy. And, and it's not just an attractive policy of itself, it is a good policy. It has outcomes and it has results for people. That's what people want.
1: But let's have a look at what else is making news in the world of politics. And uh, there's some difficulties for the Home Secretary in Kent, Caroline.
2: Yes, Kent County Council says that it is issuing legal proceedings against Priti Patel over the child migrant crisis. So the local authority says that services are overwhelmed by the number of unaccompanied children who are crossing the Channel in small boats. They say that other councils should take their fair share. So far this year, 242 children, uh, child migrants have actually arrived on the Kent coast and then been passed on to children's services.
1: Well, the virus crisis has created a jobs roller coaster for low paid workers, according to a new report by the Resolution Foundation. They say low paid workers have been three times as likely as higher paid workers to experience a negative impact on their work. They face greater risks from job insecurity and, of course, the end of the furlough scheme in September. But the think tank says although a higher minimum wage has helped, it's not enough. The government should offer a new post-pandemic contract with better rights for low paid employees.
2: And finally a number of conservative rebels are expected to help Labour force a reverse to the government's foreign aid spending cut. So during the pandemic it was reduced from 0.7% of GDP to 0.5. Tory MP Tom Tugendhat chair of the Foreign Affairs Select Committee says that the country's reputation is on the line with this issue. More than 1700 charities have warned that this move to cut foreign aid could cast a shadow over the UK's G7 summit. Which which, of course, takes place in Cornwall next weekend.
1: Now, one of the strangest moments in British democracy takes place this week. An election is being held for the remaining seats for hereditary peers in the House of Lords. Candidates include the owner of the stately home immortalised as Downton Abbey and a 90-year-old former Church of England curate.
2: But if the upper house were just quaint, perhaps it wouldn't matter. In fact, there is evidence of something much murkier among the life peers. Those awarded their places, in theory, for being among the great and the good. It's been revealed that a Conservative Party donor gave... The party, half a million pounds, just days after being made a peer. It was the biggest donation that the billionaire had ever made to the Conservatives.
1: And Lord Crudders had, in fact, previously failed the Appointments Commission vetting process to become a peer. But the PM overruled its advice and made him a Lord anyway.
2: Now, the Electoral Reform Society says that the revolving door of donors in the Lords is indefensible and won't be solved until the second chamber is fairly elected. So joining us now is Willie Sullivan, who is Senior Director at the Electoral Reform Society. Willie, welcome to the programme. Is this corruption?
4: Um, I mean, who knows, but it, it, it doesn't look good, does it, when... People are giving money to political parties and then they're getting seats in the in, in, in part of the, the, the legislature, legislature of the British government. Um, you know, it's it's it, it, it doesn't look good. We have real problems with trust and democracy. Democracy is a system that's built on trust. We have to believe that, you know, the governments that we elect are acting in our interests. And when things like this happen, it uh, undermines uh, and exasperates an already... Bad problem of, of of trust in our democracy.
1: So, what then is the answer, Willie? What 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 way could it change that would that would actually address these problems?
4: Well, you spoke about the way that appointments are made. That you know, the, I mean, let's let, let's talk about all the things that are wrong with it first, because that that, that, that is probably a, a important foundation to think about how we might change it. You talked about how the appointments are made largely in the patronage of the prime minister. Um, as you mentioned, there is a commission that uh, should oversee Lord's appointments, but even that has been overruled now by, by the Prime Minister. So what you end up with is supposed to be a second chamber that, that, that has checks and balances on uh, on the legislative process, but is, is made up of ex-political uh, uh, party members, uh, uh, you know, apparatchiks, MPs, um, and then this, this group of party donors, there's, there's quite a significant amount of people in the House of Lords who have, who have, who have given it political parties. So, you know, first of all, you need to, there needs to be a way of choosing the people to sit in this um, uh, chamber, which is not about the Prime Minister giving jobs to people that he owes favours to or, you know, who, who he needs out of the way to, to bring other people into the, into the commons. Um, And that's, you know, a big part of that is going to be allowing the people to choose. If the people are allowed to choose, then they're likely to have more trust in the chamber. Um, And that's like, it's it's two ends of the continuum, isn't it? It's like patronage um, and reward for favours and payment and friendships as well, because a lot of these people who have been put into the House of Lords are just pals of the the Prime Minister (laughs) um, to actually having elections and letting people choose in a system well, that they, they, they can that, that is transparent and they, they trust.
2: If uh, voters were allowed to then fully elect the whole of the second chamber, I mean, surely those elected officials would then want a bit more power. Is that not dangerous? Because you could effectively have legislative gridlock if the House of Lords could really block legislation in a way that it actually can't do at the moment.
4: Yeah, do you know what? Systems of government are complex and sophisticated, and I, I, I don't think it's beyond us to come up with a system that means that the commons still uh, has more power and can overrule what happens in the Lords. I mean, yeah, <laughs> um, so there's many ways to do that. Um, mo- most advanced democracies have two chambers uh, and have a revising, and checking chamber, and we can learn from definitely. We can learn. There is problems, and some of them where that, that there, there there has been uh, blockages. But surely we can learn. You can. I mean, you could just simply write into the constitution that that um, or into the rules that that you've founded that second chamber upon that the Commons has ways of being uh, the, the, the the primary chamber. But but
1: well, the problem with all that is that in the end, I mean, and people have said this to me. I've talked to them about it. In the end, if you have an elected process, on whatever basis, constitutional basis, you will still end up with parties and politicians, and the politicians will be beholden to those parties and the higher leaders. So you will have effectively the same problem. What many people say is, okay, it's not perfect what we've got at the moment, but we have got people who owe nothing to the party leaders, not once they got their position, so they can be honest and open and efficient. And that actually works pretty well as a revising chamber.
4: I think it works pretty well as long as you don't realise that there's something a lot better. <laughs> you know? I mean, the thing is, you know, we, this is what we're used to. This is what we expect, and actually, it's it, it's not particularly good. Um, and why did why did most of the lords take take the whip then? You know, if it was truly going to be independent in a, in a house of experts that was bringing their expert opinion. To revise legislation, then they wouldn't be whipped on how they're going to vote. They would vote on their, their beliefs and their expertise and the knowledge that they bring to the process. So, I think this idea that it's an independent House of Experts uh, is—it's it, 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 it's a kind of smokescreen. That's not not what it is. Um, it's so, highly partisan. It's highly uh, p- high, highly uh, made of patronage, um, and is this dis- dis- does uh, our okay. democracy a massive so, disservice?
2: So partisan, um uh, political and, and filled with patronage, in that case, where would you lift up as a good example, as a good model for what the UK could emulate or or adapt or use?
4: I think there's you know uh chambers governments in places like New Zealand, Germany, um some of the Scandinavian countries. So there's there's good examples of uh where there's better Uh, second chambers. I mean, I think on the whole, uh, you know, the British system of government is creaking at the seams. And it's partly because, you know, it's such a centralised system and it has got a lot of central power. And all the forces, you know, uh, developments in technology, social political changes, economic changes that happen in the world, driven by technology, technology is the thing that kind of drives these big social changes. The, the uh, Westminster has been able to resist it because it's got such centralised power. That's good to a point. You don't want your system of government shifting and changing to every kind of, uh, you know, minor change in social and political conditions. But it's so far behind now, you know. It's become almost, um, uh, you know, it's not really fit for purpose. And the Lord <laughs> is the biggest symbol of that. But, but uh, you wait. know, it's still got a hereditary element. It's like... It's based on patronage and giving money to political parties. But, but that I mean, is the bit that's most obviously but, wrong. There's but, lots of other things wrong, but that's the most obvious thing.
1: What's obviously wrong with the House of Commons is that it doesn't reflect the society in many ways. Diversity isn't there in a way. Actually, it is much more in the House of Lords. It's mainly white and mainly male. And, you know, having appointed house at least can address that, can't it? I don't
4: think... Anybody would think that the House of Lords actually reflects the, the 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 population of the UK. Do you think that?
1: Well, it's got more I mean, women that, in it uh, than the House of Commons.
4: <laughs> uh, yeah, and it's got uh, more. It's got yeah, a more. you're more values. likely you're more likely to have lived in a palace in the House of Lords than to build one, right? Um, you know, the, the 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 levels of manual workers, or you know, people who have done uh, you know everyday jobs or lived everyday lives. And this is important because you need your... This is true in the Commons as well, but I don't think you can hold up the Lords as a a better example of uh, representation. Um, You know, this is important because you need... Representation is not just about advocacy. It is partly about advocacy. You need people who are good at arguing and debating and putting forward points. But representation is also about knowing what it's like to live a life um and i think that is what we're missing from the whole of the system of government but it's much worse within a place where you call people lady and lord and and you know a percentage of them even if it's only symbolic but it's a significant percentage of them who get there because um it's hereditary through the through through the male line or because they um, are uh, higher members of of other of, of religious organisations. We'll
1: have to leave it there, Willie. Willie Sullivan, there. Thanks okay. so much for being with us. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB
4: digital radio in London.
0: From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage.